All right, well, happy Father's Day. Welcome to Dad Fest. Uh, my name is Jeff. It is good to be with you guys. And um, if it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're here. You may have noticed, by the way, if it's not your first time, uh, we, uh, if you're driving in, you notice we don't have our flags out there anymore. We used to have those blue flags uh, and our little A-frame sign telling you where to go. Now, you knew where to go because you'd been here before. But um, the, the, the city didn't let us know that those things aren't super, they're not real excited about those anymore. So we're just going to be looking for... People drinking coffee, and that's how you'll know, and we just have to, when you invite people, you have to be a little bit more specific instead of look for the blue flags, because they're not there anymore. So um, anyway, I'm really glad that you're here. If it's your first time again, especially dads, if someone brought you and said it's going to be really fun, they got hamburgers and a special bat signal on the side of the building, welcome. Also want to let you know, obviously you're impressed with our additional wall that we have in our room that we just like to show off, and... um, so enjoy the, the fifth wall that's in the middle dividing everything. Um, we're real proud of that. Uh, no, just, we just, this is part of us kind of thinking about how do we be innovative with what God's given us uh, because we are uh, renters in this facility and that is holding up the building. So there's a couple different factors going on there that we had to kind of keep in mind. That's why that wall is there. You can always tell people when they ask you, why is that wall there? Because if it wasn't, we would be under a bunch of rubble. So that's the reason why that's there. Um, really good to be with you guys. We're in a second week of our series Uh, cleverly titled The Bible, and the reason why we called it The Bible is because it would be easy to remember and clever titles are overrated, and if anybody asks you what you talk about, you can say with integrity. Hey, what did you guys talk about at church today? You can say with integrity. The Bible, and that's the actual answer. Like, you don't have to be more specific than that. You don't have to remember what we talked about. What did you guys talk about at church today? The Bible. That's exactly the answer. So we're in the second week of our Bible series First week we talked about um, God in, in creation and creating all things. We looked at Genesis chapter 1. Today we're going to take our next step in that. But why would we talk about the Bible and call it the Bible is because of this. We, we learned this past year that 100 million people worldwide watched the TV miniseries called The Bible. Right? See? They're catching on. And because of that we realized there's a massive global phenomenon in this, in this curiosity about the Bible. And what we know is that people both inside the church and people that are outside the church are curious about what it exactly says. Is this stuff for real? Is this really in the Bible? Did this really happen in the Bible? And so people have tons of questions. So whether you're brand new to church or you've been walking in church for a long time with Jesus, there's lots of questions people have about the Bible. But the Bible's relevant for everybody. I, this is uh, a, a quote from the, the Dictionary of Cultural Literacy. I'm sure all of you have that volume on your desk. But here's what it says about the Bible. The Bible, the holy book of Judaism and Christianity, is the most widely known book in the English-speaking world. No one in the English-speaking world can be considered literate without a basic knowledge of the Bible. All educated speakers of American English need to understand what is meant when someone describes a contest as being between David and Goliath, or whether a person who has the wisdom of Solomon is wise or foolish, or whether saying, my cup runneth over, means the person feels fortunate or unfortunate. The Bible is also essential for understanding many of the moral and spiritual values of our culture, whatever our religious beliefs. The story of Abraham and Isaac concerns our deepest feelings about the relations, relationships between parents and children. The story of Job is a major representation in our tradition of being patient through suffering. And the parables and sayings of Jesus, such as, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, are so often alluded to that they need to be known by Americans of all faiths. And so the Bible is something that whether or not you're sure about Jesus is something that you ought to know just to be a regular, literate American person. And so that's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to get into the second week here, and I'm really, really excited to talk about today's message. It's going to be great. So before we get into today, why don't we pray, and then we'll jump right into it. So let's pray. 
Father, we are so grateful that we get to call you dad. That while all of us, regardless of our own parent situations, whether our own fathers were textbook brilliant, stereo, I mean, just archetypal great dads, or whether our own dads were either absent or not so great, all of those dads are not perfect. And we are in need of a perfect father. That's what our souls were intended for. And so we turn to you and get to call you father. And so we're grateful. On this day, when we honor dads, we honor you. Jesus, we know that people come into today with all different kinds of um, baggage. Some of us walk into today victorious, head held high, excited. Some of us walk in that way because we're hiding something else. Others of us are at, at the end of our rope and are really desperate for you to intervene in some powerful way. And so, Father, wherever we are, would you meet us where we are? And God, would you speak to us in ways we cannot understand in the stillness of this moment that we might hear your voice? God, would you make yourself known to us today? in moments of laughter, in moments of conviction and challenge and in joy and in family. We honor you today, Father, at Dad Fest, <laughs> Father's Day. In your name, Jesus, amen. Hey, if you want to follow along in your Bible, you know, if you brought one or you borrowed one of ours or, you know, whatever, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 mostly. We'll jump around a little bit, but I'll mostly in Genesis chapter 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, no big deal. We got stuff on the screen for you as well as in your outline. If you want to pull that out, that would be great. Just whatever you need to help sort of follow along. But it is Dad Fest. It's Father's Day weekend. It's Father's Day. Um, my, uh, my, you know, my kids, as they're wrapping up school, um, I realize some of you guys' kids are already out of school. Mine are out of school, I think, Thursday this week. But they, um, they, they do all those sort of little projects. This, they did a little Father's Day project. My daughter uh, did one. I want you to just show you a little bit of what she did. This was in from her first grade class. You can kind of see there's, she colored in me fishing. I hate fishing. But um, there's that right there. It's my dad's special because he loves me. And then I want to just, I want to highlight one particular thing real quick. We can zoom in on the next slide here. Okay, notice my dad is, so my dad can do many things. But do find, my dad is as handsome as a fish. So handsome as a fish. I know that you, when you think of handsome, you think of fish. But my, so my daughter, you know, worked really hard on that. And, you know, she showed it to me yesterday. And, you know, oh, this is so sweet. Thank you so much, Molly. I love this. And. I am a fish, look like a fish. I asked her last night, I'm like, so you said it? She said, did you, did you share with everybody my thing that I made for you for Father's Day? I said, oh yeah. Tell everybody that I'm as handsome as a fish. And she goes, she even paused, she goes, I didn't know what else to write there. And I was like, <laughs> that's fine. And, and my nine-year-old, for his project, uh, he, he, I mean, first he drew a picture of me, which is incredibly flattering. L yeah, look at the neck on that guy. <laughs> yeah, there's some guys that, that go to church here who are, you know, they play football at Saddleback and some other high school football players and stuff, and I've, I've never once been confused for them, <laughs> but with that neck, maybe I'm going to get recruited. But anyway, so here's what my dad wrote, or my, my son wrote about his dad. So here it is. You can show the next slide, too. This is, this is what he wrote. So it says this, my dad lights up my life. He loves me more than any boy over eight years old. <laughs> so specific. Uh, <laughs> We snuggle up on the couch and watch a TV show. Then he puts me to bed and always kisses me goodnight. He's very smart. He's really good at math, which is not true, but when you're helping a third grader with their math, 
You are, you're Einstein. I mean, you're just a genius. Uh, my dad is fun and playful. He likes to play with me and skateboard with me. My dad is very intelligent, kind, and honest. My dad is a good dad. Listen to this. He has the best job ever. His job is learning to be a better dad and love Jesus as much as he can love. Yep, and my dad is fast. <laughs> but to clarify, that is not what he does, but he is fast. <laughs> so I, I am not gainfully employed as a fast person, but that's all right. My dad is the best dad ever. So those are my two oldest kids. And I, I don't know if my youngest would write, my youngest is now four, but I'm not, I don't I don't think he would write the same letter as the other two did. Here's just a quick video of how we used to have our fun in our living room. Ready? <laughs> <laughs> you hear my wife right there. Oh. Yeah, there you go. That's my boy. <laughs> All right, that's good. You get the picture. Uh, the, the thing you get is that dads may be a lot of things, but perfect isn't one of them. Dads are a lot of great things, but perfect isn't one of them. And it does raise the question a little bit about what makes a great dad. You know, when we look at our own world where we live, the world says some unique things about fathers. On the one hand, there's this sense of needing and sort of this heroic need for dads. But on the other hand, you've got to get this sense about fatherhood in the world that's a little different than I think honors fathers. The world portrays dads as largely imbeciles, mostly barely surviving every moment of every day, just barely getting through the next moment of every day. The world describes dads as irrelevant, that really they're not that important of a figure, that if anything they're there to assist the moms in the real work of parenting. That moms do stuff, but dads are kind of a little bit, they're almost sometimes like the other child that they didn't sign up to raise, and there they are, kind of constantly helping them do that, you know, you got a little food right here, whatever, all of that kind of stuff, Man, being managed as children. Dads are seen in the world as optional, and dads are critical. They're not optional. They're not irrelevant. They're not assistant to moms. They're really important. You know, when um, we look at the smallest functioning unit of society, we look at the family. And the more stable that the family is, the more, the, the more likely a society is to be cohesive and work together. And, and when, when psychologists, family, and, and sociologists look at, look at society, whether or not they're Christian, they'll look at the family and say, the stability of a family is largely based on the role that the father plays in it. That... Little boys gain their identity and their masculinity, their first picture of what that looks like from their father. Daughters gain their first understanding of femininity and who they are from their fathers. People get a sense of who they are from their dads. The biggest force for shaping a family is a dad. Now, some of you were raised in a home without a dad around, I was like me. Others of you are raising your own children and you're raising them in a home where you don't have a dad there. And let me just for a moment just pause and just identify that reality. 
as, my, as I think of my own mom as being a heroic person, having to fulfill two roles for her own son, how difficult that has been and how difficult it had been for her. And let me just tell you, single moms, as much as I'm able, I get it. Some of you, as we talk about Father's Day, we're talking about a day that, well, it might have been a day to celebrate in the past. This is a year maybe where you said goodbye to your dad. Maybe he's not with us this Father's Day. And so you have a different kind of appreciation for Father's Day. Father's Day represents a challenge, but as I think about my own scenario, my own, we talk about fathers in the world, dads are critical. And I know that my mom and I both would have, if there was a way to have had it work out, that my dad could have been there, it would have mattered, because dads do matter. And when we ask the question about what makes a great dad, we're really looking at this idea of how you measure a great dad is the way in which he regards his own family. The greatness of a dad directly relates to how he measures the value of his own family. How does he regard his own family? In other words, the higher their regard for the family, the better the father. And so today I want to look at a definitive father figure in the Bible. He's like, this is a guy who, like all dads, is not even close to perfect. There's about 15 chapters of the Bible that have him as this central sort of human figure in all of those stories. He is called by God. He is, three times in the Bible, he's referred to as a friend of God. And he's a guy who has a remarkable faith. If you look on your outline, we'll just, or, you know, you can look in the Bible as well. But in Genesis 15, 6, it says this about a guy named Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham. It says this, Abram believed the Lord, and he, meaning God, credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham, or Abram in this case, his name later gets changed. Abram had a faith that was so unique in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament that it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, most of the time people talk about righteousness, particularly in the Hebrew Bible. You have this sense that people are righteous because they've done some stuff. There's a track record that proves their righteousness. Only what's known here is it's just Abraham or Abram's faith here to which God says, it's, you are mine you are credited and called righteous because of this unique faith that you have. So why do we want to look at the story of Abraham? Not only is he the archetypal father figure in the Bible. I mean, people refer to him as Father Abraham. Maybe you grew up in a church where you sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Sons had Father Abraham. You wonder why I'm not in the band. I mean, with that kind of stuff that I got going right here. But you remember, it's right arm, left arm, turn around, punch your friend, kick a face. I don't remember the whole. But there's this whole, this whole notion of Father Abraham because he's a definitive father figure, but he's not perfect by any stretch. In fact, a lot of his story is so incredibly troubling and confusing. And the most confusing, most troubling stuff about his story, the stuff we're actually going to cover today, is probably also what makes him the most compelling and the best at, and yet it's the most shocking reason in the world why. This is a guy who, on a number of occasions, he kind of panics. He marries his wife, Sarah. And um, on a number of occasions, he kind of panics when people kind of show up. Or he's, he's just kind of this nomad guy. He's moving around a lot. And uh, he shows, a number of occasions, someone will, will show up. He panics and he goes, he immediately tries to pass his wife off as his sister and then sell her to a person. Like, ah, oh, ah, uh, uh, you can have my sister. Just go with it. It's cool. Everything's fine. You know, he tries to, and I mean, a couple, he's, this guy is a, he's a nutcase. 
He's a guy who is incredibly impatient. He's a guy who wants to have kids so bad that he decides he gets, a, he acquires a slave named Hagar, and he decides, you know, well, maybe, maybe we could just, maybe we could make a kid that way. And so he kind of has to deal with that whole deal and kind of talk to his, I mean, this guy is not exactly your A-plus father, and yet he's referred to over and over again as a friend of God, whose faith is credited, credited to God as righteousness. And he somehow manages to be seen critically in the Bible. A little background to Abraham. Uh, this is a guy who has been promised several times in his own story the, the highest honor that any person in the ancient Near East could have. He's promised that he's going to have a lot of kids. He's promised over and over again, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to be the one uh, through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. It is, and the way in which the world will be blessed is always because of offspring. That's the best possible thing you could tell a dad in the ancient, or a man in the ancient Near East. That your bloodline. Your lineage would go on forever and ever. Now, I have, I have three kids. I, I, and in the way that Abraham's often described as the promise that's going to come to him is that he'll have as many kids as there are stars in the sky or that there is dust in the earth. In fact, the Bible says if you could count all the dust in the earth or count all the stars in the sky, that's how many kids, how many offspring you would have. I, I have three children. And I, um, I, I, I'm reminded of the comedian who talks about a fourth child who says, he has three kids. This comedian says, he goes, I have three kids. He goes, let me tell you what four kids is like. Imagine that you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> now, Abraham's promised a super long lineage with offspring as numerous as the, sky, as the, as the stars in the sky. And he's promised this at several, several stages in his life. And as he's getting older... At 99, he gets the reminder again, hey, you're going to have a kid. <laughs> I, okay, God, um, just want to remind you, God, how everything works. My wife is in her 90s. I'm 99. Just remember how, remember the whole, how all things are, we're old. Okay, you have to imagine this. So when he does have a kid, He's a hundred years old. Now, I remember having our first child and never, ever realizing, never knowing that kind of tired before in my life. I don't remember. Some of you are, like some of you parents remember this. Your first kid is the, is the most difficult because psychologically you are so unprepared for how tired you're about to be. Because you've been tired before in your past. There have been times where you've been so exhausted, you said, oh, I can't wait to sleep in. <laughs> oh, I remember the glory days of sleeping in. There was a time when that happened where you could just sleep in. For, no, it just doesn't happen. When you have, like, that, that day is over. You just get tired upon tired. Now, imagine being 100 years old. This is a person who eats dinner at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then sleeps. Now, he has a kid at 100 years old. Remember, he's had this promise. The greatest blessing you could ever hope for would be that you would have a long lineage of children carrying your name. And at 100 years old, he has a kid, and he names him Isaac, which means <laughs> he laughed. Like, oh, my gosh, we have a child, and we're really old. Now, imagine they're, the, they're going to the supermarket to buy pampers on this side of the aisle and depends on this side of the aisle. 
They are, they are both buying strained peas in little cans because neither of them have teeth. It is this, I mean, that is the kind of scenario you're working with here. And there's Father Abraham, so blessed to have a son. He laughed is what his name is. There's Isaac. And he's his cherished son because he's been waiting his whole life to have a kid. And so God issues to him a test, which we'll get to in a second. Now, throughout Abraham's life, throughout Abraham's life, he's been called out from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. I love the name of the city, Ur. You are. Easiest city in the Bible to spell. Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur. So he's called out of the city. He doesn't know where he's going. And Abraham, he's just being led by God. out. He's this courageous guy. And in every moment, in every test, whether he passed or failed it, he's always had this kind of, this is the way it worked, with him with God. There's a challenge issued to him. Abraham is faced with a difficult decision. Do I really want to do this because of what's at stake? And then ultimately a trust or a lack of trust in God's provision, to, like his sort of divine providence provision for him. That's always what he faces. Whether or not he, he does that right all the time, that's what he faces. A challenge, a decision, a provision. Now, in Genesis 22, the writer tells us he's going to be tested. Here's what it says, Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am, he replied. Now, a couple things. The words, here I am, if you want to circle it in your Bible, or you want to circle it on your outline, however you want to do this, I, I would encourage you to do that, because here's why. The words, here I am, I mean, literally, they mean, here I am, that's how it translates, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. In Hebrew, it means a little bit more like this. It's, it's like this. The, the best way I can describe this isn't the best way, but this is the best way I can describe it. There's a line that is in every really cheesy action movie. It's a line that guarantees that when it is uttered on screen, it, will, it has no chance of ever being recognized as an Oscar-worthy anything. The movie is immediately disqualified. And you've seen this happen in a number of movies, but the, as soon as you hear it, it's like that movie, that movie is not even, no one even cares about that movie anymore. I mean, might sell a lot of tickets, but no serious critic cares about that movie. It is the line that I'm sure was in one of the Fast and Furious's. It's this line. Usually it's a matter, they're up against some kind of scenario where there's like, we don't know if we can make it. It's up to us. That's the kind of circumstance. And the line is, let's do this. You know, they cock the guns and run through, you know, whatever it is. That's always this, let's do this. Now, if you have ever seen a movie that has the line, let's do this, or let's do this thing, the other more clever version, let's do this thing. If you ever hear that, that movie's just not going to get a whole lot of praise from critics, guaranteed. Now, when he says, here I am, as cheesy as that might be, what he's actually saying is, let's do this. Abraham, Abraham, whatever God's going to do, he does it. Now, here's what you have to notice. Because he says, here I am, he's aware there's a challenge. He's aware there's a test coming his way. And he doesn't say, okay, God, I hear your voice. If you could run through some of what's ahead so I can decide if I'm going to be in, give me a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's about to happen. That would be great because I'm not too sure. I want, but I'm, as long as the conditions work out, I'm going to say yes, but I'm not totally sure yet. So just, you know. Give me the rundown. Instead, he just says, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, I'm ready. Here I am expresses a willingness, a readiness, a receptivity to instruction, and he says, let's do this. A challenge is issued. 
No details about that test. And Abraham says, I'm ready. Verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now, stop right here. Notice the increasing intensity and intimacy with which it's written. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Abraham is 100 years old. Remember that the, the best way to be blessed in this particular time in the world is to have a long lineage, particularly of male kids. And here's his son, his only son, whom he loves. The drama is ramping up here to what's about to be said. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Here's Father Abraham confronted with the reality of what it means to be a good dad. The measure of a good father is one who, how, how we can measure a father by how he regards his family. And here's the test God offers to him. Go ahead and take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on this mountain. Whoa. Now, what you have to know is this, first of all. In this land, remember, God is being revealed throughout the Bible. They don't have the whole picture of the whole Bible. Abraham's story is as God is being revealed. And the only gods that people knew about in this time were gods that had to be appeased. They were gods who were mostly frustrated or angry or disappointed with humanity. And the only way you knew that the gods were or were not frustrated or where you were in their favor is when bad things did or did not happen to you in your life. And one of the bad things that consistently happened in this region of the world called Canaan was that first, the infant mortality rate was incredibly high. And people believed that gods were claiming their own kids. And so well, the way that they would deal with it, they would appease the gods who they were afraid of by taking the life of their firstborn son. So Abraham, while he loved his own son Isaac and probably had to wonder, my gosh, is this my only shot at having kids because I'm really old? There's a precedent here that says, okay, I guess this is what we do. I guess this is how we do this now. I guess we're no different than any other God. And he's faced with this incredibly difficult reality. Do I adore the gift that God has given to me? God has entrusted me with something. Do I adore the gift or do I adore the gift giver? Because God's given me a gift of a son. Do I adore the gift or the gift giver? Is it mine? Is my own son mine to possess? Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now listen to the... It's interesting the way this is written. Verse 3. Because it, it doesn't say, after he had cut enough wood to sacrifice his son Isaac, whom he loved. It just says, the burnt offering. Now, I don't know whether that's cognitive dissonance. I don't know whether there's some kind of, the writer can't write it. Or there's some kind of foreshadowing, or who knows. But there is only this reference to the burnt offering. He can't say Isaac, the one whom he loved. Just the burnt offering. Knowing what's about to happen. 
Verse 6. He goes to get his son. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. There it is again. And placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, a very fair question. Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but uh, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You have to imagine. We're going on a hike, me and dad. We're going to go up on this mountain to worship together. Where we, you know, this is kind of the practice here. We make a sacrifice of a burnt offering. And we're walking along with the donkey and the servants. And there we go. Hey, dad. Do you have something in your backpack? Because uh, what are we going to, what's, what's the plan? Because I'm, I'm here and you're here. And here, we, where's, is there anything, anything we're forgetting here? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now you don't know what Abraham's totally saying. Is he, is he kind of lying to his son because he knows what God has told him? Does he believe that God will provide something as a substitute? Does he believe God will, does he believe he's just recalling his own son, the lamb? Is that what, I mean, is he hoping that God will provide him with enough strength to carry out this heinous act? Who knows what happened, but he just says to his own son, God will provide. Remember Abraham's journey. Challenge, decision, provision. And at 100 years old, he's still relying on that same idea. And then in verse 9, which is called, this is in the, in Judaism, this is what's called the binding. I mean, this is just known as the binding. <clears throat> Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an, altar, uh, built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound, there's the binding, his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Oh my gosh. Some of you have watched the... Um, some of you have watched the, the, the miniseries, the Bible miniseries. Um, and you, you, maybe you've seen this, this scene. So what I did is I, just, I looked it up just to see what people were saying about it. I looked it up on YouTube to see if I could find the scene on YouTube. And then I just looked at the comments. And most of the comments were, were not like from people who had heard the story before, evidently. They're people who were shocked. Here's just three of them. These are the ones that don't have words that I can't put on the screen. But here's three of them. This is insane. This guy's insane. Is God psychotic or just a troll? Now, I don't, I, honestly, I don't know whether the, the troll term there is, is like meaning to talk about an animal that lives under, you know, a bridge and eats goats or whatever. Like, like I don't know whether that's what he's talking about or whether he's talking about like in the internet sense where you're trying to j- drum up comments by doing things that are sort of, you know, saying things that are kind of crazy. Truly disgusting. How can this be an inspiration to any thinking person is beyond me? That there's this guy... This guy called Father Abraham, who has bound up his own son and placed him on the altar, and he's holding a knife. And if the measure of a father, a good father, is how he regards his own family, then we got a real crisis here about what it means to be a good dad. Because as we look at what this, this story, this most shocking story, we're faced with this kind of reality here, which says, wouldn't it have been a better dad? If he had said, I don't care what God does to me, I'll take the punishment, but you can't have my son. Wouldn't that have been a better father in this scenario? What kind of God would ask this of a man? This is insanity, right? 
What kind of person would ever willingly sacrifice their own son or the things that God has entrusted them to care for and about like that? Who would ever do Could you imagine? Have you ever heard of someone who sacrificed their family on the altar of their career? You ever heard of someone who sacrificed the things that they valued the most, the things that God had entrusted to them for an addiction, for a secret, for a habit, that they built themselves an altar around that addiction and then they sacrificed everything they had upon that altar? You ever heard of someone who sacrificed their family on the altar of their own desire, hormones, to be with someone else? You ever know anybody to sacrifice the things that are most dear to them, the things God has entrusted them on the altar of attention, on the altar of uh, seeking a promotion, perhaps? You see, it is so easy for us to look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and say, how dare he? But there are so many other altars upon which we sacrifice the things God has entrusted to us. There's so many. Abraham's kid is on God's altar. And Abraham is living with this unbelievably difficult and gruesome tension. God has issued to him a challenge to which he's accepted and he's faced with this decision and he is, at, even at this moment, still praying for God's provision. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Again, I'm ready. Whatever, whatever it is, let's do whatever it is, let's do it. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. In other words, you have built an altar to me and you have put the thing that you care most about upon it. If you were with us last week, we talked a little about this, that the whole of creation, the story of creation, the Genesis chapter 1, that first creation narrative, is about this one thing, that God is over all things, that all of creation is built as a temple to worship Him. That the right order of all things is when they are, when they are oriented toward Him, the one who is in the, the God of the universe who orders and places things as they ought to be. And this is simply reiterating that you have placed the thing that you care most about on an altar to me. And he says, I've seen that you fear God, which is a willing obedience to him. And then verse 13, Abraham looked up there in the thicket. He saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son or as a substitute for his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The word, some of you might know the Latin version of this, when it talks about God providing. The Latin version is Jehovah, Jireh. The Hebrew version is Yahweh, which you see there on your outline. Yahweh, Jireh. God provides. And it is on this mountain that God provides. <clears throat> 
And you have this strange writing here. There's no accounting for the emotion of Isaac or Abraham. There's no sort of, and Abraham, stricken with grief, fell to his knees, overwhelmed, horrified, embarrassed, shocked at his own behavior. And Isaac, looking into his, the eyes of his father, looked at him, scared, screaming, fearful, confused, forever damaged by this one moment. You don't get any of that kind of drama because it's emphasizing something else here. What's being emphasized is that God provided a substitute on this mountain. About 2,000 years after this incident, another young man would carry wood on his back on this exact same mountain where God would provide, and he was sacrificed on a cross, and God did not spare his own son. Instead, he offered him as a substitute for all of humanity, Jesus. And you see the language so similarly written to that famous end zone Bible verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see... There is an altar upon which all of us have built our lives. We have placed whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, we have placed it on an altar. The question isn't, what are we withholding? The question is, on what altar are we putting it on? Let me tell you what my my own altar was. It was scary and shocking, and it's still something that still bothers me to this day. It's still something that convicts me and challenges me in my own life. Maybe you connect with this. Uh, when I had, we first had our first son, Dylan, <clears throat> this is, I was probably 26 or 7 years old, and um, I'm working at church, and I'm, this is, I'm brand new at Mariner still, probably a year or so into the job, and um, I'm really concerned, one of my biggest things is I just, I really wanted to be successful and good at what I was doing, and I worked really, really hard, and I began to figure out that my own time with my family began to be sort of compromised a little bit by how much I was spending time trying to solve the last few things I had to take care of at work. And I was getting frustrated because I would find myself, Amanda would call me and say, hey, we're going to so-and-so's house uh, after, you know, for dinner or whatever. And I was finally saying, man, I just want to be home with you and our son. I want that to be what we do. And she, she, I said, why do we keep doing that? Why can't we be together? And she looks at me, and I was kind of on my high pedestal there. And she looks at me and she says, because I don't think if I didn't schedule us to be with anybody else, that you would come home to be with us. Because you'd rather work than be at home with us. Now, I would say that in my own life, my, the reason why my own parents weren't able to be together is because my dad was someone who was very dedicated to his work. He was willing to sacrifice a lot for his work. And that all came crashing down on me in that moment, saying, I am willing to sacrifice my own family on the altar of my career. And the only altar upon which we can give everything that we've got, trusting that God will provide, is the one that is for him. Do we honor the gift giver or do we simply hold on to and adore the gift? Or do we sacrifice all of that 
on some altar. We can look at Abraham and call him crazy, but there's an altar upon which we would sacrifice everything. As Abraham proves himself to be, again, this faithful person, while not perfect, God declares this, reiterating his promise, verse 16 says this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, again the language, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Here's what I want you to do in your outline today or in your bulletin. You got a little clip art version of, a, of an altar. You need to take that out. What I want you to do is to consider for yourself what is the altar upon which you would sacrifice the things that God has given to you? What are those things that you've already gone, oh my gosh, I'm building an altar and it's not God's altar. God has entrusted me with things that are incredibly dear to me that matter to him and I'm already sacrificing them on an altar. What is that altar? Is it like me? Is it like a career? Is it attention? I talked to someone last night who said, I just, my own busyness, I need to continually keep myself busy for whatever reason, and I am sacrificing so much for that. Someone said, uh, as we were talking yesterday, someone said, I, I, I wrote down perfection, a need to be perfect. That I'm sabotaging relationships and family and people that I care most about so that I can be and live up to Perfection, and that is the altar upon which I'm sacrificing the things that matter most. One person said, I'm sacrificing things that God has given to me on the altar of not permitted desire. What is it for you? What we're going to do in a moment is this. You're going to get a second right now to write this down. I want you to write it. If you have to write it vaguely or small or in a small little fold so no one else sees it, that's okay. But you have to know what it is and you have to write it. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond just for a moment. We're going to give you a chance to think about this. And then in a moment, I want you to take it and you see these prayer walls right here. Usually when we talk about coming forward, talking about leaving a sacrifice on the altar. What I want you to do today is this. After you write down the altar on your card, I want you to write, I want you to place your altar, in effect, at the altar. So you're going to roll it up as soon as you write it down. And then Ethan will give you some instruction in a moment to come forward and begin placing those into the, the prayer wall. Just like this. You roll it up, just about like that, and put it in there. No one will ask you what yours was. If you want to talk about it, you can. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. But this time is for you to respond. What is the altar upon which you are sacrificing the things God has entrusted to you? So let's respond. Let's pray together, and then we'll respond together. Father, you have called us to place our lives in your hands and it is so incredibly difficult that this there is no we want an out clause we want a yes I'll do this but and yet the way in which the whole world was designed to function is that you would be honored as first and most important and even the things that we value the most we kid ourselves sometimes father when we imagine that we are not sacrificing them on an altar 
And so, Father, would that altar be the right altar? Would it be for you? Affirming you as the Father who provides, even when we don't understand. And so, Jesus, would you give to us the words that are held captive in our own hearts that we might write these things down, that we might be honest and courageous, and that we might place these things and leave them here. So, Father, we respond to you as our good Father, our Dad, surrendering, Father, those things, the altars in our own lives upon which we're willing to sacrifice that cannot ever provide. So hear our prayer as we sing, as we respond, and as we write. In your name, amen.